Hi, everybody. Thanks for coming. I did a story recently on homeless women veterans, and um, these are women who had been living in their cars, living in storage containers, all sorts of sort of very difficult situations, and people would ask me, wow, you know, that story, that must have been really depressing to report. And my answer was, no, it was really great to report. These were wonderful women with an incredible sense of humor, and they'd come out the other side. Um, our three panelists today are all experts on resilience and um, how we can foster that in military and veteran families and also perhaps in our own communities. So I would like to welcome them. Um, to my left is Megan Glenn, who is a UCLA, UCLA graduate and a member, was a member of the women's soccer team. She's now a deputy director of Blue Star Families, which is an organization that fosters connection and support mili between military families. And um, Megan and her husband, Matt, have been married for almost 10 years. And um, one of uh, her professions, among many, is as a childbirth educator and doula. And she stepped in in the clutch, I guess, often to help spouses um, during childbirth when their husbands were deployed. And she is now the um, the deputy of sorry Blue Star Families, which is an organization that fosters connection with military families. Um, Dr. Patricia Lester is a child and adolescent psychiatrist and a professor of psychiatry at the UCLA Semmel Institute. She is the co-developer of a, or an organization called FOCUS, which stands for Families Overcoming Under Stress, which was designed to promote resilience and mitigate stress in families with an emphasis on prevention. Um, Dr. Lester also co-directs the Welcome Back Veterans Family Resilience Center, which is dedicated to um, veteran families, and she's also the co-principal investigator on a Department of Defense study to evaluate the impact of wartime deployment and reintegration among young military children and their families. Dr. Judith Broder is the founder of the Soldiers Project, which is a national all-volunteer network of therapists that offer free confidential treatment to veterans of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, as well as their families. The Soldiers Project has now more than seven branches across the country. Dr. Broder is a psychiatrist and psychoanalyst who won the 2011 James Irvine Foundation Leadership Award, and she is also the winner of the Purpose Prize which honors people whose second careers have addressed the greater social good. 
My first question is the obvious one, which is um, with multiple deployments, um, what have we sort of learned about what's different or perhaps a contrast um, to this current generation of soldiers and families versus past, past wars? I'm happy to start. I don't know that it's a difference necessarily. It's just a conversation that I have with my friends. Um, my husband, Matt, deployed or has deployed five times, and we have four children. Um, they're six, four, two, and three months, so they're, they're little. Um, but a conversation that we have is it doesn't matter if it's your first deployment or your fifth deployment. It never gets easier, and in fact, it gets harder. It's like removing the Band-Aid when you know that it's going to hurt. It's almost worse leading up to the next deployment because you know that it's not going to be easy, that it is going to be long, the days are going to be long, the kids are going to be acting differently um, in response to the deployments. And we have another one probably coming up next year, so we've had a little bit of a break. But my child, who was four during the last deployment, will now be seven, and it'll be a whole different beast to tackle. And, you know, it's, it, you, you can never get used to it, um, and people are always like, how do you do it? And none of us know. We just say, we just do it. And we, we have bonds amongst um, the first three deployments. I happen to be stationed in Germany. So um, as it may seem that you're isolated out there and it would be more difficult, but it's actually um, you're in a community of other spouses and all of their husbands are also deployed. So I would probably five or six nights a week have my friends over and the kids over and everybody would play for dinner and um, we would meal swap and we would just, it was, we became our own family. Um, for the last one, I happened to have my own parents five minutes down the road, which that one saved me, you know, to be able to be like, Mom, I need to go for a run. Can you just take the kids for a half an hour and to drop them off and, you know, know that I was getting some time to myself. But so I don't know that it's a difference. The only thing that you know is that it's it's difficult every time. So. You're both in the mental health field. Uh, maybe you could sort of address that from a mental health. Sure. Standpoint. You know, I think um, you just described the, the picture and perspective so eloquently. I, you know, for, for us and, you know, what we've learned working with military families is that what's different about this war perhaps is that it's so long. The duration is so long with such a large professional military that there are more children who are actively saying goodbye and hello to a parent over and over again. If you think about a decade at war, for a child less than 12 years old, they, maybe for their whole lifetime, they've been going through this, um, these series of transitions, which I think they accumulate enormous skills at doing that, but it's always hard. And particularly separation in the context of danger for a child or a parent, as you heard from um, our speaker, that, that the family lives with that worry and a child lives with that worry even if they don't express it. And I think that's what one thing so powerful for our, our um, families is to hear from their children 
what they're concerned about, what their questions are about, and to be able to think about that with them and prepare for those separations and help the family develop um, and build upon their own resilience and going through that process. So I think that, that within the family and within the community, being able to do that together uh, is one of the things that's uh, been helpful in this really long process. Um, <clears throat> I don't know what to add, except maybe to say something about the fact that um, about half of the people who are deployed are um, reservists and National Guards, and they don't live on a base, and they don't have the support that you were fortunate enough to have. And, and so the stress on these families who are hidden among us, I would say, is, can be extreme. They are resilient, there's no question about that, but all of us have a limit to our resilience. And 10 years, 12 years is a very long time. I have many stories of young families who manage okay and manage okay and then can't manage anymore because they don't have parents who live five minutes away and they don't have the support in our communities. To me, this kind of a forum is extremely important because I do feel it's up to us to figure out ways to provide this kind of support. Um, my organization is really like a drop in the ocean in terms of what is needed. But if each of you do something like what I did, then there'll be big waves where we can provide the support um, and encouragement for our families um, and for our returning service members. What do we know about children? What do we know about how they do? I mean, I was reading that Military children typically move six to nine times between kindergarten and senior, being seniors in high school. And um, Dr. Broder mentioned the National Guard. I mean, I, I think another issue is that there's a school issue, right? Because there's the, the vast majority of the children don't go to school on the base, right? Exactly. They go to a regular school where... Uh, their teachers or the administrators might not even be aware that they're going through something. So I wondered if you could each maybe talk about um, that and sort of what we need to be doing to make, you know, these children's lives easier. Sure, I'll start. Um, I, I think what we know uh, about military and veteran children um, is growing as we go. Um, when we started this work maybe eight years ago, in, in terms of a real research understanding, uh, it was limited what we understood. But we knew that overall military children actually uh, seem to do better than civilian kids on a number of... Um, you know, kind of social and developmental academic uh, measures. But that w we, what we didn't know was how uh, cumulative deployment 
might affect them uh, and cumulative stress. Uh, we knew if you had a parent with a psychological health problem that that was a risk for kids in military families, just like civilian families. So we knew some things to be helpful uh, to families uh, going through this process. And we knew that military kids uh, change schools uh, usually fairly well, um, and, but that there are things we can do to help them uh, in those transitions. And there's a number of initiatives now, uh, I think led uh, largely by the Military Child Education Coalition and others, to try to improve the lives of military children and veteran children through schools. Um, but I think, you know, the remarkable thing about kids is they're always developing, they're always changing, and that when we see this growth, as somebody mentioned post-traumatic growth earlier, we see developmental growth assist them in managing these transitions. And what we need to do is help their parents and their communities, their schools, um, give them the tools that they need. So we need to know when they're hidden in our communities um, so that we know how to support them uh, so that they don't feel isolated and alone. Um, I'd just like to add that one of the things that seems important is for our schools to know when they have military children in their schools, which actually right now they don't. There's no system. There's no system. There's no system. And so um, teachers don't know even to ask that question, or counselors in the schools don't know to ask that question when Johnny, who was a good student, all of a sudden is falling asleep in class or um, punching someone on the playground. Um, it's really important that the uh, teachers and administrators know about this so the kid doesn't get labeled as a bad kid when all that's needed, it may be very little that's needed. It may be talking to the parents and helping them understand that their kid is suffering with things that he can't tell them about. I think one of the things that you do is you find ways to have to start a conversation so that children can tell their parents what that they don't have to be tough soldiers all the time, that they need to be able to have a parent that they can turn to who will understand that this is progress to be told that someone is in pain and not a sign of weakness. Dr. Lester, I wanted to ask you come up with some creative strategies. You have something called a feeling thermometer. Can you just... Well, we didn't invent the feeling <laughs> thermometer. Uh, we, our, our program, um, Families Overcoming Under Stress, uh, is right now is at 21 installations around the country and in the Pacific Rim. And so we've had the privilege uh, of working with military families um, in doing really prevention work, helping children and parents develop resilient skills so that they feel better prepared uh, to talk about, to get ready for deployment, to also deal with reintegration. And I actually have two of my um, military spouses who uh, work in this program are here uh, in the audience today, both in Okinawa and in 29 Palms. It's really cool to, to have them here and see them. But I, we, we have come up, and the families themselves have come up, and the providers, too, have come up with tools that we have found useful, been able to 
teach other people about and amplify the impact of the program across the communities. You gave me two great examples of, of two of the tools that weren't part of the original program and then have become this, these useful activities. And I think that this has been a great partnership with military families, military medicine, and the military community in building the program. Megan, do you feel that spouses have gotten enough recognition. Um, I mean, obviously, spouses are dealing with an unbelievable number of, of issues sort of collectively. And um, yet, I'm, I'm not sure that um, there's sort of a societal recognition of, you know, the role that I spouses do. I, play. One thing that I've always said is that, you know, regardless of people's political opinion of the war, everybody supports the military service member and their family. And it it amazes me that when my husband acknowledges that he's part of the Air Force, the the way that people respond, everybody's just like, thank you for your service. And they, in the past few years, it has been a shift. In the past few years, they turn to me as well and they say, thank you for your service. And to me, I get embarrassed. It's like, well, it's not me doing anything, you know. But it, it is an acknowledgement. Um, and even just May 10th in two weeks is Military Spouse Appreciation Day. And Blue Star Families, the organization that I'm part of, is participating in a, n a number of events that is just recognizing the military spouse. So the military spouses get together. <laughs> what are the topics? We're dangerous. Of <laughs> yeah. We say we us. can conquer the world. Yeah. Um, no, it, you know the conversation is actually it's just your normal conversation with an underlying understanding that we just get each other. You know, and they are our sisters, and you can just um, one of one of the chapter directors I manage. She was just experiencing what I call the worst part of a deployment, which is the two weeks prior to him leaving. For me, I just want him to go. I don't want him to go, but I hate, I'm not an emotional person. I'm very strong. And those two weeks, I'll, I'll watch him like giving my son a kiss and I start crying. And I'm like, well, this isn't good for me. It's not good for the child. It's not good for my husband. He thinks I'm a basket case. Like, can I just wake up and you're gone one morning? because that's easier than actually physically saying goodbye. So she was going through that two-week phase, and I just, I just reached out to her really quickly, and I said, hey, call me if you need anything. And it's this just understanding that we can just vent and know, you know, it's like venting with your sister. You can say, this is awful, I hate this, and I, you know, I don't want to be a military spouse. But then at the end of the day, we know that we're all proud to be a military can spouse. Can I ask maybe a... a a stupid question. Are there any men in your group? There, um, <laughs> I happen to be friends with the um, military spouse of the year for last year. He was an Air Force spouse, and it's a male. Mm -hmm. And he is a wonderful advocate. I don't know if you've met him, Tulsi. I'm sure you will at some point. He's um, out in D.C., and to me, he's, he is a military spouse that stays home with the children deals with deployments, he has a special needs daughter, um, and he has really risen to the occasion and, and taken the issues of the, the um, exceptional family member um, up to Capitol Hill. And so, um, but on a day-to-day -day basis, no, it's all, all females. <laughs> so. um, what are some of the, 
in terms of mental health, um, I think that things have gotten looser, but from what I understand, there's still... I think soldiers are a very stalwart, you know, I don't need help lot, right? And from what I understand, there's sort of a reluctance to seek help, particularly perhaps emotional help. And I wonder um, what you've noticed in this regard and if, if the wife is calling saying, you know, my husband needs help, how do, you, how, do you, how do you get, you know, how do you get service members to sort of admit that, you know, they might need mental health help as opposed to physical help, which is sort of a more obvious thing, right? So, um, I do think there's been a change in the past, I've been doing this for now almost eight years, and there is a change in the last few years. Um, actually, at the very start, when, um, we were told the guys will not speak to you. You've never been in combat. You're a white, middle-aged lady. What do you know about combat? It, you won't get anywhere. But it turns out, and I think this is really important for everyone, that if you're really interested in hearing a story, really interested, and that means hearing some awful stories, then that person will come back to you and talk to you and again and again and again if need be. So one of the, so about a third of the people who call us are spouses or parents or grandparents because it's a complicated family structures, and what we do is we see, they often say it's my husband who needs help, and we invite them to come in to talk with us, and I, don't, I suppose it's therapy, but it's a kind of psychoeducation where we help people understand what it's like to, as best as we can, to have been in combat, to come home, to feel disoriented, to feel lost because the bonds of brother and sisterhood are so powerful and as powerful as we feel our family bonds are, after serving in combat, it's not the same and families often are very hurt by that experience of um, feeling rejected and pushed aside, but with help, they can understand it, and f and we help them find ways to be patient and be present for as long as it takes, because we know that keeping families together is what keeps the military strong and the people who are serving in combat strong. So it's it's a vital thing to pay attention to. Are there any families that stick in your mind who sort of are, you know, who illustrate sort of how resilience, you know, someone who had a challenge, met it, and, you know, 
went on. Are there any, either your friends or your, your patients or clients, is there, are there people who've sort of stuck in your mind and said, you know, um, this person made it because? You know, I'm, I, I think this is partly a response to the question you just asked about people's willingness to come in. What sticks in my mind is um, the remarkable willingness of uh, service members who we also heard would be reluctant to come in um, and, and talk about feelings or their concerns, but to, to know that they're there for their families, they're there for their kids, and to think about all the moments of them, you know, getting down on the floor with their children and building their family story and making shared meaning out of their experience so that they really could reestablish those bonds and reintegrate and move forward. And so when I think of, you know, a 23-year-old Marine uh, down there doing a collage with his child um, and then very sincerely saying, I'm going to take this home. Can we take this home with us? Because we want to be able to look at it later um, to help us understand the differences of, in what we went through, the things that hold us together, um, and how our story makes sense collectively. And that seems like that's at the heart of family resilience, is really being able to make that sense of things. How do you foster, I mean, how do you help someone make the transition Someone who's, you know, been at war, has a sort of, you know, gear up all their adrenaline and sit on the floor, you know, <laughs> well, I think playing it, a game. It, helping people understand the, the normalcy of making that shift, how, how the typical things that happen, you're, you're in the frame of mind of being reactive and prepared for safety. You know, this could be the day. Um, and then coming home and, and needing to reconnect with a three-year-old. But you're not the only one. There are other people doing it. And there's things that are expected um, that happen. It's hard when your child jumps on you from behind and surprises you. Um, maybe that was the way that you always played together, but now you have a big startle reaction. But to understand that's normal and that you have a way to talk about it and help your child prepare around it. Uh, I think those things really are empowering to families and help them understand how to get through it together as a team. Well, and as, as a spouse, and having been through it a number of times, we now know that the couple weeks prior to him coming home, we start talking about our rules for when he comes back. Um, and our first rule is you cannot judge what I've decided to do with our children for at least two weeks. Because within a couple of days or hours of being home, he'll be like, uh, when did that start? And we're all perfectly happy. And I'm like, I need you to keep your mouth shut. It works. And that's, that's what I did to get through this time. The kids are now six months older or you know, a year older, the same discipline that worked when he left doesn't work now. Um, and so, I mean, I move furniture. I do a lot of stuff when he's gone, just so it doesn't, I don't see that absence. And I, when he comes back, I just say, I need you to just be an observer and kind of see how the kids have grown, how they've changed, see how I've chosen to discipline them while you've been gone. Um, and we will have a discussion, and we can change things as you see fit to bring you back into this 
this core family, but for right now, I just need you to watch. And then once, once we kind of get through that initial period, then we'll make changes to include you. Um, and, but talking about it before he gets home instead of as a like, oh, you know, why are you doing this right now? Um, it, it opens the discussion and it makes for, it's still not easy. The whole, the homecomings that they show, they're so romantic and they're so happy and it's romantic for a very short time. And then it's like, oh, you know, I've got more laundry to do and I have, I now have to cook a real meal for dinner instead of eating cereal because I can't feed my husband cereal, you know. Um, so it's a transition that's very difficult. But, but making anyway. a plan. Making that's a really plan. Cool. And, and did you have these conversations by phone, by Skype? Um, so the first deployment, we, we didn't have the luxury of social media or the internet. So that was, and that's when we learned um, I think it was after his first deployment that I, I had a big freak out because it, it didn't happen the way I thought it would. When he came home, he was still very distant, and I was just like, you know, who are you and what are you doing? And then we learned from that one, and for the subsequent other deployments, we talked about it prior. Um, and I forgot your question. Yeah, so we talk about it beforehand, and and then just let it play What out. about the just sort of in and out of the family life? Because um, that has happened. Um, what do we know about easing those? I mean, it sounds like you really had a good communication yeah. with your husband. Um, but I think that is challenging for a lot of people. What do, what do we know about the in the in and out um, nature, which is probably going to draw to a close now, right? At least more so. Yeah. Spouses <laughs> are actually worried about that. I, that was my next yeah. question. Oh. <laughs> you know, so maybe like, you should. So much of our relationship has been built. I remember when yeah. I first got to Germany, I was twenty. I had just graduated from UCLA, and I went off to Germany, and I had an older spouse tell me don't worry, you're going to look forward to their TDYs, which is a temporary duty for three to six weeks, and the deployments. And I looked at her and I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. And to this day, I still don't agree with that. I don't look forward to it. I don't look forward to them being home, but it becomes part of our pattern. And so with them being home Mm -hmm. indefinitely, a lot of spouses are like, what am I going to do with him home all the time? You know, because they kind of look forward to that little break and then getting him back and... And they're nervous. Right. I, I mean, I can... Yeah, we... Um, I, Yale has a, a program similar to UCLA's where sort of adopted a unit, and they did a live chat from Afghanistan a couple of nights ago, mm-hmm. and the question turned with a number of, of the men, well, you know, what are you going to do next? <laughs> and... There was just this sort of, you know, clearly sort of like a deer in the headlights moment. And I'd sort of be interested in what your concerns are, all, all, you know, all three of you with the, the drawdown. And, you know, we've got lots of people coming home now and, you know, 
what are your concerns? What are the biggest challenges going to be now? Well, I always was thankful for my experience here as a soccer player because if I practiced and practiced and never had a game to play, the practices would not have been worth it because they were grueling. I mean, this was a job when I was a player here. And to never have that game to actually exhibit what I'd learned and play with my teammates would have been um, demoralizing. I wouldn't have wanted to do it. And so I wonder for the soldiers coming back, you know, people are always like, how can he be so excited to deploy? And it's like, well, that's his game. He's been training and training. And if he can never play, then what's he training for? And so now when they're coming home and if they are going to be training and not revving up for their next game, you know, they're, yeah, it's well, going to be difficult. One of them said, uh, you know, when we're home, we're thinking about being deployed. Mm -hmm. And when mm -hmm. we're deployed, mm -hmm. we think about home. And it's very confusing, and then you're asking us to make career decisions mm -hmm. in the midst of this confusion. Mm -hmm. I think uh, another piece of this is the, the downsizing of the military. I think the conversation I had just before our, this panel was, uh, you know, people who expected to have a long career in the military and have deployed several times may now not be able to continue that career. And so having to then figure out your life course that is different than the one you expected, as well as, you know, not being out of that high adrenaline going back um, and having to come back and really reintegrate and transition and redefine your role. These are challenges at any age, I think, to reestablish re uh, who you are and, and you know, your work role and your, your family uh, life is quite challenging. And I think a lot of people are worried about uh, what that's going to be like. And I think what you were talking about in terms of purpose that this, to me, is central. Mm -hmm. That to live a life without meaning or purpose is terrible. And I actually think that's part of why we see so many veteran suicides, that they haven't found service. They, right. are, they serve. They serve for us. They serve. And it is um, a very empowering feeling. So I think one of our challenges is to find ways to help our returning veterans continue to serve. And it's, it's, a, you know, it's a fine line. We want to provide them with services, but they're people who have provided service. And they, the, the sense of purpose and meaning, I think, will be central. And if we, and I feel it's our society's job. If we fail at being able to find purposeful lives or provide then we have really failed and i think this this does worry me because many of our service members were actually developmentally still children when they went in they were 17 years old they're not grown up and they have missed a whole period of development they've been catapulted into something that most of us would hope we wouldn't have to be in, and now come back, and they, mo they don't have families like yours, which is a wonderful family, because they were children, and they picked people 
who were also children, and then they had children, and the, the, it's really beyond what they can work with effectively unless we help them in those ways, so. I wanted to ask you what, getting back to the sort of, you know, big question, what can, can we be doing as, a, you know, what, is a com what should communities be doing? How can we sort of help support the, I, both, I both, the, the, the veter both veterans and their families? We don't make it easy because we like to be that strong, silent, <laughs> you know, behind-the-scenes force. And just last week I received an email f uh, from a woman in Orange County and she's like, I want to do something tangible. I want to go buy groceries for a military yeah. family. I want, to, I want to help the family. I don't want to just um, do something behind the scenes. And I wanted to write her back and be like, you want to come to L.A. and be my personal assistant? I'll let you go shopping for me. But I don't know how to connect her to families in Orange County because I don't know where those spouses are. Um, and the spouses, it's like they... We want you to come out and say, hey, I'll, I'll mow your lawn for you because your husband's deployed, but then we also won't ask for it. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know that it's all on the community mm -hmm. to come forth. It's, it's encouraging spouses to be okay with saying, I will yeah. accept your help. Mm -hmm. You know, like, you want to go buy me groceries? Here's my shopping list. Thank you, you know. How much of an issue is money? How, how much of a stress our finances um, hmm. when you're <laughs> exiting. Exiting the... Well, when you're, when you're... Yeah, I mean, there's no sort of... It's very stressful. My husband and I just... Or my husband just um, separated from active duty two years ago and then moved into the uh, California Air National Guard. Um, and it, he was... He literally planned for that moment for seven years... And it was still unsettling, and it happened to work out very well. But somebody who says, I'm getting out next month, what can I do? And we're like, ooh, you probably should have started five or six years ago making that plan. Um, but it was still very nerve-wracking. You know, here we have children, and how are we going to support them? We don't know if our job search will take three months or if it'll take 12 months. So it is a very real stress in the family. Just add to the what can communities do because mm -hmm. I think I think you're right. It has to be a partnership between mm -hmm. veteran families, military spouses, and all of us in the community. But I think this kind of dialogue yeah. um, at training the community to understand uh, the service, mm -hmm. uh, the military culture, the needs of military and veteran mm -hmm. families, but doing that, putting. Um, services and information where people are. So in their schools, in their pediatrician's office, in community mental health, in educational institutions, having us all as a national community be aware of these needs um, and, and be able to really connect with and support military and veteran families in a way that's not asking them to come in for help, right. but it's really just changing the culture and the capacity of our, our you know, service systems to support families effectively. Mm -hmm. Any thoughts about that? Uh, 
just to reiterate that, that um, so I have a little story that I think may show how things could be different. Um, a woman who was shopping at the grocery store and um, all of a sudden she started to sob and the people around her, she, she was uh, a reserve family, so the, it was in a town where nobody knew, and the people around her didn't know what to make of it, and when she identified herself as crying because her, she had just heard that her husband was injured, people didn't want to know, actually. Mm. It's not a nice story, but they really didn't want to know. And so the, those interactions could change. Mm -hmm. It would be very easy to reach out and put an arm around someone and say, thank you for your services. There's something I can do to help you. And I think people under those, in those instances would be relieved, would say, yeah, just walk me to my car or something. I mean, we don't need a lot, but we do need to know that there's someone around who understands what we're going through and uh, will give a helping hand. Are there any other interventions that we know of, like, I mean, you were talking about your, your sort of gals uh, plus one male <laughs> network. Um, are there other sort of interventions that could help, like like peer-to-peer, -peer, you know, veterans talking to veterans? Um. Well, there's, um, there's a group of teenagers who are military teens who have a community, it's a lot of it is now online, but they meet together and help each other. And, and with the Soldiers Project, we actually have a peer-to-peer -peer program in Sacramento where we give guidance and then train spouses primarily to do be with other spouses, bring the knowledge to other spouses. So, but it has to be peer-to-peer. -peer. I mean, we don't want everyone in treatment. <laughs> Not everyone needs treatment, mm -hmm. but everyone needs some understanding. That's what I think. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Thank you, thank you. Thank you. so much. Thank you. I'm Mary Ann Davis, and I work at the VA, and I've been in voluntary service for the last 10 years. And I do want to say that, you know, we... we haven't got too much interaction with reserve units, but we have a tremendous amount of interaction with family members at the VA. And for anybody that wants to help family members of veterans, um, it is quite common for folks to come and say, you know, we really want to help a family. We'd love to do their grocery shopping for the week. We had a young man recently that came down from Alaska, and he, he was a veteran, and he came to L.A. to find a job. God help him. And... <laughs> And, and he brought his car full of kids and his young wife and little baby to the VA and said, I need help. And we ended up, you know, running out and buying clothes for the kids and formula for the baby and setting him up in a hotel and getting him into job training and da 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 da, da. But we need volunteers to help us with that. So any VA will have a voluntary service and anybody that wants to help veterans um, who need can, can contact us and we'll get you to work.
Thank you very much, first and foremost, for being here. I wanted to reiterate something that Colin said earlier. I know he's back there. Uh, the conversation about uh, transitioning out of the military should begin when you enlist. And that's interesting because, Megan, you had mentioned something about, you know, the preparation took your husband seven years. Um, I got off active duty here on Easter Sunday after 10 years in the Marine Corps. Um, currently at, at Anderson, transitioning, using the GI Bill with, um, you know, such a, I mean, so blessed to have that opportunity. My question really is, it's, I mean, I'm short of shaking a little bit. I'm very, very nervous to see how, um, how this transition affects my family, right? Because, you know, being deployed twice, um, you know, sons were both born one month. I left Iraq. Second time I was uh, on a ship when that happened and then went down to Marine Corps Recruit Depot San Diego, which a lot of people don't understand. Boot camp um, is actually... For, in my opinion, worse than, worse than a deployment because seven days a week you're, you're training, making Marines, soldiers, and sailors after you just got back from Iraq. Um, so that in and of itself you know, is, is much more demanding when mom sees that you're in San Diego but you're really not home. Um, now that I'm going to be home and you've been two years since he became a reservist, I've, uh, I think the only thing that's helping me out here is you know, the Goldman Sachs interviews, the Bain interviews, every, you know, oh, great, you know, Juan, diversity, MBA, Anderson, you went to Annapolis, Marine, yeah. you know, we want you to work, hey, great, you know. Um, I've tried to define success um, time with my family, but I'm scared of it. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Like, Bain doesn't matter, Goldman doesn't matter, the money doesn't matter, that'll come. I mean, I know that'll come, but I have a seven-year-old and a four-year-old that uh, <laughs> don't, don't really understand why dad's been studying or why dad's been deploying or whatever. And now that I'm going to have the opportunity to spend time with them, I don't know what that's going to be like. So can you comment on that? I mean, I mean, you've already experienced it. I think that's very, you know, prevalent amongst my Marines, my soldier, I mean, that I've served with before. They're scared about being around their wife. Um, one, one last comment on that is is I was, I was smiling when you said that, that, you know, your husband coming back home. Um, I'll never, ever forget when I walked into base housing on Camp Pendleton after my first Iraq deployment, I felt like a guest in my own house. Um, and it actually was bad. It was, it was like, how dare you, like, not listen to me? <laughs> you know, like, I haven't seen him for nine months. I left when he was like this, and now he's like this, and you're putting him in timeout. That's not okay with me. So I think, you know, that the comments that you made are, are huge and I've, I've tried to pass that on and there's a lot of people exper- experiencing it but I just wanted to see your comments as I'm going through this transition here in two months I'm reconnecting with my family so I'm just wondering what, what your thoughts were Megan telling point will be next summer because that's when we will have been living where we are now for three years <laughs> and that's when we typically would be moving on somewhere else so right now we are very very happy and I am very unusual. I was telling you guys that throughout the whole military career, I kept telling Matt, I really want my children to go through school in one place. So I want when our oldest is five or six that we are, we are set. And as long as we're east or west of the Rockies, that'll be close enough to my family who happens to live in Agora Hills just about a half an hour from here. We actually live in Agora Hills. And I'm like, are you sure? That's kind of close to my family, you know? And it was my husband who really fell in love with that area, and his job allowed us to live there. Um, But it'll be about next summer where I'll see if he starts getting that itch to move on. 
um, and how that will play in. But for right now, it's wonderful. And, you know, for my friends who are now just on my way here, I was talking to a friend and she's like, well, we got skipped on this VML, which I don't know what VML stands for, like word for word, but it's when you get your next assignment. Um, so you put in your choices and then they come back with this is where you're going. And she got skipped. And she's like, so we'll be here for another eight months at least. And in my mind, I'm like, I just love that that's not even in my conversation anymore. You know, that we are growing roots and that I can, you know, invest in the school that my children are in. Not that I wouldn't otherwise, but I mean, the school that I'm in with my kids, I'm going to be there for 12 years. I'm like, I hope they like us because we're not going anywhere. But it's been wonderful. Think that maybe being able to grow roots in one spot would have uh, changed your decision to stay in the military? I know definitely the answer for that for me is yes. I mean, I'm from Los Angeles. Yeah. Went to high school in Oceanside, and, and if, if I would be able to stay and deploy endless times from one location, my wife would be totally okay with that, and so would I. Um, because that's not something the military you know, breeds, mm-hmm. um, I would say it's bleeding talent because mm-hmm. people are leaving because their spouses want to be, so leave me alone, I don't need you to buy groceries, I just want the military to let me raise my kids in mm-hmm. one spot. Do you think that that, that might be shared? It could have made a difference. I don't, I think my husband, Matt, always knew that he wanted to go into the, the corporate world, and so much of military is you've been in six years, here's your promotion, and I think he really wanted to be challenged in a way that he was recognized and rewarded for the efforts that he put in. Not that military doesn't provide that, but I think in his mind, he was always going to be corporate um, after he put in his time, so I don't know Can if I that would have say one thing? I'm not the psychiatrist in this group, mm-hmm. but I just think it's, for you to acknowledge that you're scared is a really yeah. brave thing right there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, wait, I would, I would say... You have got, gone through many challenges that successfully that are not bigger than this challenge you're talking about. So just in this few minutes, I have no doubt that if you know that you can ask for help, if you feel you're tripping, then you're going to make it. And maybe you, just the fact that you are really wanting to do it, just like you really wanted to serve, that's already you're on the way to success. <laughs> My name is Francisco Juarez. Um, I'm a veteran, and I want to make a statement about pretty much your panel because your panel of all women has really come up with, with the answers, and that would be to prepare in advance, to educate the community, and to be empathetic. These are things in preparation of a dysfunctional family. But um, I'm sure you get approached every day with people coming from dysfunctional families and like our dysfunctional government. Um, how, can, <laughs> how can we, uh, how, how, how do you approach, I'm sure you get more dysfunction than you do, like your family that prepares ahead. Mm-hmm. So what, what can we as a veterans organizations do to send them to you or what can we do to, as an intermediary to help solve this problem? 
I think many families, uh, as you suggest, will do well with maybe just little pieces of information that they need about an extraordinary challenge that they're facing. But if a family's having more difficulty, I think it's really important to be able to identify that as early as possible and, and match them uh, to the right service. Um, maybe that's, hopefully that's located not too far from them. Um, and so I think you know, there's lots of resources in Southern California for veteran families, uh, for veteran children, um, and we're happy to help link you. I know the Soldiers Project is too, that there's, you know, there's this growing capacity to be able to help families who, are, who may be struggling or who have, um, you know, more adversities kind of piled on, not just uh, making those transitions out of the military. So... I, I don't know if I answered your question, but those are my reflections. And I would just say one of the um, <clears throat> main reasons for the Soldiers Project is to intervene early, uh, to try to cut short the bad effects that happen when things really get disrupted. And you can call us anytime. If you call us, even someone will talk to you and we usually can get people into our offices within a few days and we try to do it as close as possible to where the family is living. We see families and veterans, we see grandparents, we see actually best friends, brothers, sisters, because we know that everyone who loves a veteran is affected in some way when something isn't going smoothly. I think the good news is that uh, the California Guard and Department of Mental Health and our, our program focus have trained now 200 folks in the LA Basin um, in different levels of our program, exactly. teaching about military family and veteran resilience, teaching them the clinicians how to do the focus program. So say, same thing, if you call our number, we will link you uh, maybe to the Soldiers Project, maybe to one of the Department of Mental Health sites, one of our own providers, uh, the VA. There's, I think that's the good piece that's happening now through all these um, you know, sort of training and enhanced capacity. Um, Stephanie Stone with LA County Department of Military and Veterans Affairs and Navy Veteran. My question is for the mental health professionals. Um, this war has created um, a unique situation. We have more women veterans that are combat vets now. What are the unique situations or issues that they're dealing with specifically that we should be aware of as friends and family? One of the things that's most prominently an issue has to do with military sexual trauma. And uh, this is now getting some publicity and out in the open. Uh, it, it's a terrible thing when this happens. And unfortunately, or I don't know what the right word is, um, women veterans are loath to speak up about it. So are male veterans, by the way. Military sexual trauma carries the greatest stigma much more than post-traumatic stress or anything. So they're, they're hesitant to speak up and um, hesitant to go for services with the party that's injured them. So there's a need for community services that will provide an educated need 
who will provide services for them. Um, the other thing that I can say about combat women combat veterans is that many people don't believe them. I mean, they don't believe that they've seen combat, and um, that creates a problem in terms of um, the, oh, the whole question of empathy and respect and understanding. Uh, so education for the whole community, I think, is also extremely important. I would just like to, I agree with what you just said, but I'd like to add that I think it's it's really critical um, that we recognize that there is a higher rate of combat exposure, even people whose roles and duties aren't specifically uh, combat. Uh, women have been seeing combat for a while, and so there's higher exposures resulting in higher rates of post-traumatic stress, traumatic brain injury, and that our service systems, even our community-based service systems, historically have been set up more for men. I know the VA's made big advances in women's health, but that means healthcare for younger, for young women who are often parenting young children, um, who need services around couples, uh, kinds of therapy issues. So I think just attunement to the demographics of the population and their needs and their family needs are really critical and making those environments hospitable for women um, and places where that they could bring their children uh, if they needed to and are thinking about all those aspects of their lives because that's just not who typically used the services pre previously. Thank you so much. Thank you.